Hey, good morning, Center Church. I'm so thankful that you're here. My name is John. I get to serve as a lead pastor. If this is your first time, thank you for being with us. And if you're watching at home or with family, thanks for being here. If you're part of a home church, thanks for gathering together to experience physical connection in this very, very interesting time. You may be wondering why I'm wearing a tie-dye medal. And I'm going to tell you, but not for a few minutes. Because uh, many of you already know this, but over the last couple years, I've really grown in my love for running. And uh, it's been interesting because as I've learned more and more about running, I started to learn that people were running farther and farther than I ever thought was humanly possible. I first heard about 5Ks when I was in high school and did a few of those and heard about 10Ks, half marathons, and then this elusive, like just enormous event called the marathon. I was like, I'll never be able to run that, but wow, isn't that incredible? Well, I started running and picking it up and eventually kind of surpassed the marathon, surpassed a 50K, and then heard that people ran 50 miles in one effort. And immediately I was hooked. I was like, I got to try this. I don't know if I'll be able to do it, but I have to try it. So I trained for about an entire year, dialed in my nutrition, got my runs in, um, did everything you're supposed to do. All the training plans were checked off. I was ready. So I get to the race, get to the race start line, start the race, and the day went pretty well. I say the day because at this point, I'd run about 10 hours at one time until I hit mile 48. Mile 48, my running watch had finally died and I was about to die with it. I, I could not describe to you the pain I was in. I mean, my legs were seizing up. I was dripping in sweat. Uh, my mouth was dry. I was thirsty. I was hungry. I was ready to be done. I basically had resigned myself uh, to saying, this race is over. Like, it's over. I, I got this far. At least I made it. And two miles from the finish line, I about quit. Now, you may be looking at this medal again and saying, wow, isn't that incredible? Incredible! He won something because he didn't quit. This is actually a finisher medal, which <laughs> just means, yes, eventually I did make it across the finish line and ran 50 miles. And it's really, really interesting. I'm going to take this off because this is all you'll look at. It's interesting to me that in our world, there's a lot of events taking place. There's a lot of things happening. And probably in your own private world, there's a lot of things that you're facing. And there's a tendency when those crises happen for all of us to give up and simply to say, it's all over. It's over. I know for me, it's easy to sit and watch the news of people's families like George Floyd's family who are wrestling with incredible pain right now and to look at how far we have yet to go when it comes to racial equality and seeing God's kingdom dream actually achieved on this earth. There's a tendency for me to look at that just like you and say, I don't know if we're ever going to get there. It's over. As our world eclipses or our country eclipses the 100,000 death mark due to COVID-19, and I know a pastor who's lost someone in their church. Maybe you know someone who's been affected. As I look at that, there's a tendency for me to say, like, this thing is just going to run. It's, it's going to do its own thing. It's over. I've got no control over it. Some of you are facing financial struggle right now, and it was more than a layoff. It was an identity. It was a vocation. It was a purpose, and you've lost that. There's a sense in all of us right now looking at some of those things in our world and just to say it's over. And when you get to that place of saying it's over, 
mentally and even emotionally, there, there's this feeling that overcomes us, not only of disappointment, but of anger. Some of you are furious right now with the state that our world's in. Others of you are sad or depressed or even anxious and worried about what the next six months are going to be like. For all of us, we get trapped into thinking, is it over? Have, have we missed it? Like, Maybe you're sitting in a home church and you've already had this conversation with some of your new friends and just talked about, maybe it's over. I want to take you to a time in the scriptures where there was someone and a group of people that felt just like you feel, that felt like it was all over. And for the last six months, we've been journeying through the gospel of Mark, watching Jesus' every move. We've been studying his teachings. We've watched his disciples heal people and be a part of miraculous feedings of other people. We watched him walk on water. And then last week, we watched him face the horror and the redemption of the cross. And and I want to take you to the very last couple verses in Mark. Today, we end this journey as we're living in the aftermath of resurrection. Uh, We're going to study what happens when these disciples think it's all over. That hope has been lost. And so grab your Bible. I'm going to grab mine. In verse 1, here's what Mark writes in Mark 16, again, starting in verse 1. Here's what he says. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they may go to anoint Jesus' body. This is common practice for disciples and for those who are following a rabbi. Very early on, in the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, Jesus' tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? If you're going to go and embalm a body and anoint a person's corpse for burial, you've got to be able to move these enormous stones that were there. And this group of women was probably wondering, how are we going to, once we get there, how are we going to move this stone to, to embalm Jesus' body? And they're doing this when Sabbath was over. The reason Mark includes that is because the very best Burial spices and oils had to be bought, but they couldn't be bought on Sabbath. So these women, they get up extra early. They go to the market or go to their local spice dealer. They pick it up, and then they head to Jesus' tomb. No one expected resurrection. For these women, it was all over. And the reason it was all over is because they had to personally watch their rabbi, Jesus, be crucified. Crucifixion was final. You don't come back from a Roman crucifixion. The disciples themselves are still in Jerusalem. Even though, and I think this is hilarious, even though Jesus told them a couple chapters earlier, wait for me in Galilee. When I rise from the dead, I'm going to meet you there. They don't believe that's ever going to happen because they too watched the cross happen. And they, Jesus is not coming back from that. It was final. It was permanent. And yet in Mark 14, 28, look what what Jesus instructed them to do in the the midst of this. He says, you will all fall away. Jesus told them, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's talking about Old Testament prophecy that when that cross moment happened in history, it would scatter the disciples. But after I've risen, he said, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Mark 14, 28. You can go back and read that chapter that we talked about a few weeks ago. The disciples at this point had scattered. Judas, long gone. 
Peter, full of doubt and even betrayal, gone. Thomas, James, John, they're nowhere to be found in this story. And I want you to put, you, put yourself in their shoes. All of their hopes for the last couple of years have been stomped out by a Roman soldier's boots. Their ears still ringing with the sound of nails being driven into Jesus' arms and hands. The weak had finally over, been overcome by the strong. The future of their faith and even their family was buried in a cold, dark cave. It was over. Hope was lost. Look what Mark writes next. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, and you can imagine kind of the fear and the worry about what they're going to find. They walk into the tomb and they see a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Clearly this angel (laughs) picks this up and his first words to them are, don't be alarmed, he said. Don't be worried. You were looking for Jesus of Nazarene who was crucified, past tense, but he's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. I mean, they're walking into this cave. They take the steps down and they're looking around. There's nothing there except a few grave clothes. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. He's fulfilling his promise. There you will see him just as he told you. Friends, can I just speak a word of hope over you today? Resurrection means it's not over. It's not over. Resurrection is the chance at a new life. Here's what moves me about this story. Not only that it's a historical event verified by witnesses and that I can put my faith in that, but it also means that if resurrection is true, everything else Jesus said is true as well. That he's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the healer. He's the redemption. He's the hope for my life. But that is not how we often live, even as disciples of Jesus. You may sit there and you're watching this and it's easy to think, well, I'm still addicted. It's over. I'm still not pregnant. It's over. I'm still sick. It's over. I'm still behind financially. It's over. I'm still depressed. It's over. I didn't get laid off. I got fired. It's over. And in the midst of that, in the midst of that defeat, this resurrection moment drops into the story. I remember my first year of pastoral ministry, and I came out of college. Lindsay and I got hired at an incredible church in Detroit. We were so pumped and excited. Well, it was a couple months into that process that I became the worship leader. And so I was doing that on a weekly basis. Thursday night was our rehearsal Thursday night, I'm gearing everything up. I'm getting ready to lead this rehearsal, getting the band set and and all together, but our drummer wasn't there, which started to make me a little bit nervous. Finally, I get a text from him and said, hey, and one of those novel texts, you know, like not the quick ones, but the ones that take a long time to scroll through and read, it was one of those. And he basically paraphrasing what he said was, my marriage is over. We're getting a divorce. I don't feel like I can be there Sorry I'm leaving you kind of in in a pinch here, but I'm not going to be there tonight. It's over. 
and described further on that his faith was crumbling in the midst of this marital tension, in the midst of this depression that he was walking through. For him, it was over. And there was a process, but eventually I sent some probably very meaningless text back to him, just trying to piece it back together, met with my pastor at the time and shared like, I don't know what to do with this situation. Months go by of counseling and prayer and restoration and healing. They're still married and their, their marriage has been rebuilt. But the difference was not that he bought into the, the narrative that it was over, but that there was a greater story he was willing to submit his life to. And it was really the resurrection because the resurrection means it's not over. There's always hope. There's always a second chance. Eventually, he got to the place where he believed that for himself. And frankly, even as a pastor, I didn't know he was carrying that. I didn't know that every Sunday where he got up there to drum and to sing worship songs and raise his hand and worship that he was walking through that pain, the feeling that it was over. Now, I wonder, church, is the world trying to get our attention right now? Are there people in our city who just want to be heard? Who over their lives have been declared it's over, but they need a fearless church to stand up in the face of injustice and of pain, of confusion, of political infighting, and to say, it's not over. The resurrection has has changed everything. And the resurrection for us, if you're a disciple of Jesus watching this, it should change our conversation. It changes how we relate to one another. It changes our online interactions because this isn't all there is. The resurrection proves that it's not over. Even our faith. I've been thinking a lot about this and we've processed it together as a church over the last couple of months. Guys, our faith is not based on a physical church service. It's not based on a building. It's not based on a logo It's not based on a lead pastor. Our faith is based on the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection doesn't happen, all of us that are Christians are fools. We've placed our hope and and bedded our life against the fact that about something that maybe didn't happen. But the resurrection proves that it's not over. One of the kind of blessings in disguise in this quarantine season, which is now over, praise the Lord, (laughs) has been reading. It's been taking time to read some stuff that I always wanted to read. And uh, again, all of you probably know this by now, but I love history. I love church history and studying that. And I was reading about a church father, early church father, 200 years after the resurrection of Jesus took place. His name's Origen. And Origen wrote often about the fact that Christians should view their lives as being a living spectacle to the people in the arena of life. Now, you may already be connecting the dots here, but in the Roman world in which Origen was writing, this is not just kind of spiritual language. This is literal language talking about gladiators. Some of you remember the movie, Gladiator. Like This is a scene that would have been conjured up in the Christians' minds. See, often Christians were bought and sold to be spectacles in these arenas, thrown to lions, stabbed, tortured, eventually murdered in the sight of thousands of Roman citizens 
watching this as entertainment. This is the setting Origen is writing those words. How could he say that? Honestly, how? What gives him the nerve to say that this is what it's like to be a Christ follower? It's to be living in the arena of life among the gladiators of our world and to be a spectacle. How could he do this when people are being tortured, stabbed, fed to lions? Because even when it was over, they knew it wasn't over. That the resurrection had had robbed death of its sting, had taken the venom out of of death itself had had removed the, the belief that death was the last word. The resurrection changed all of that. What I love about what Origen continues to write is that there are stories and we have stories in the new Testament of this too, of Roman soldiers and jailers coming to Christ, actually giving their lives over surrendering to Jesus, not because of a Facebook post Not because of an incredibly convincing argument, but because of the way the Christians were persecuted and how they reacted, how they responded. The only way you can live through something like a gladiator's arena is because you know it's not over. The only way you and I can live through this life with all of the pressure and all the challenges and all of the suffering that we're facing, because we too as Christians, we don't hold on to the fact that this life is all there is. We believe it's not over. It was Christians like that who lived completely opposite to the culture that actually won groups of people over. Origen writes, there were spectators in the arena who, who left the arena and began following Jesus because of the way these Christians died. It's incredible. It's inspiring. I can let you into something as your pastor Every single day, I pray that God would make us a church like that. That live and interact, spend money, use our time, raise our kids, completely opposite to the narrative of the world that says it's all basically over. And believe that the resurrection is the way. That Jesus being risen from the grave is our eternal hope. And that should, I hope, change everything for us. Which is why this story ends in such a weird, weird way. Seriously, read with me in verse 8. Look what Mark writes next. He says, Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and they fled from the tomb. They ran away. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, I want you to pause, especially if you're with your home church right now. I want you to answer the question amongst yourselves. Why were the women afraid? Seriously, let's take 30 seconds and talk about that with whoever you're watching with today. Who, why were the women afraid? I hope you had fun discussing that question because it is one of the biggest questions Mark leaves us with. If I had to take a crack at it, and as I studied over the last couple weeks, I think it's a mix of a lot of things, probably some of the things that you shared. 
It's a mix of fear. What happened? How did Jesus rise from the dead? The second is probably unbelief. Like, did that really happen? Again, we watched the cross. We saw the spear go through Jesus' side. I don't think he's coming back from that. But I think the third emotion they're probably feeling, and maybe you feel even reading this story, is awe. It's wonder. It's, oh my goodness. If this happened, everything is different. The world has been remade. And Mark ends his story on a cliffhanger. In fact, most scholars and historians agree, verse 8 is the end of the Gospel of Mark. This is how he leaves it. Kind of unresolved, not a great conclusion. If you went to the theaters, you'd be kind of annoyed that, oh, that must mean there's a sequel, right? You've been to a movie like that. Well, we could go to movies, okay? So as I'm reading this story fresh, I think what Mark is inviting us to do is place ourselves in the story. Mark, as a gospel writer, is saying, now that the resurrection has happened, these women flee out of fear and a mix of wonder and awe and, and amazement, how will the story continue through you? What will you do with the resurrected Jesus? And if you've already accepted him and surrendered your life to him, how will you lead other people into that experience? Again, maybe it's through your home church. Maybe you need to pick up the phone and call somebody and make something right. Maybe it's with a boss tomorrow at work. How will you let the story continue through you as we live in the aftermath of resurrection? The resurrection means it's not over. Can I pray for you? Jesus, I thank you that in the midst of the story, you do invite us to play our part, to step into it, to experience that hope and that promise and that new future and that kingdom of God for ourselves. So God, I pray whether people are watching alone right now by themselves, maybe they're with family, maybe they're with their home church. God, I pray that you would continue to help us to live out that resurrection story really well. In times of crisis and times of challenge, God, I I ask that you'd give us an an eternal perspective, an eternal hope that changes not only how we view our future and our eternity, but changes how we interact with other human beings today, what we fight for, what we speak up against, how we love, how we reconcile, how we forgive, how we hope again. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters watching, God, would you make us people of the resurrection? Would you remind us today personally for ourselves, it's not over. In Jesus' name, amen.